0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 20th, 2021. I'm talking to you from San Francisco in Northern California in the United States. Once again, the news in the U.S. is not really particularly good about the future of American democracy. We're back to um, the charade, if you like, of, of, of destroying the system, a game of chickens. Uh, the, the, the headlines today are about Senate Republicans saying that they're going to vote for a debt default, leaving, uh, according to the headline, the Democrats scrambling for a plan to avert Economic crisis. We know that if uh, there is a debt default, the entire world economy goes down the lavatory. Uh, lots of other headlines about that today. Uh, Congress, apparently, according to the Hill, must address its looming debt crisis. Uh, the White House has ruled out concessions uh, in this in this game of chickens. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is involved in the in the chicken game too. So. Uh, The really interesting question here is how do we conceptualize what's happening in America? One of the things that occurred to me as I've seen what's happening in America is it's becoming more and more like the Lebanon, a country in perpetual political decline, a kind of quote-unquote confessional democracy where neither side has any interest in participating in a political, civic way with the other. Here we have a headline about the Lebanon uh, quick fixes to get out of its economic crisis, which it seems to have been in for the last 40 years. Uh, even the parliament in the Lebanon doesn't work after power cuts. Um, and uh, Lebanese are continually investigating uh, various kinds of corruption in the system. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is to think of the crisis um, in the context of a small town in Italy called Kiramonte, Um, uh, It's in the province of Potenza in the south of Italy. And it was the subject of a really interesting book. Uh, I think it's about a 50-year-old book, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society, uh, by a very distinguished uh, sociologist, not everyone will have heard of him, Edward C. Bamfield. Um, The reason I bring up Bamfield and The Moral Basis of a Backward Society in terms of making sense of America alongside Lebanon, is that there's a really interesting new book out, Our Own Worst Enemy, by uh, the Atlantic columnist and uh, academic political scientist Tom Nichols. It doesn't begin uh, in the Lebanon, but it does uh, begin uh, in uh, Chiaramonte. Uh, So Tom, and I've got him on um, video from his home in Rhode Island. Tom, in terms of making sense of the current American predicament, Why do you start with the Banfield text? Why do you start in the south of Italy? Uh, You know, it's an interesting
1: book because it was written so long ago. uh, And yet, uh, and it used to be a standard read for social scientists about development and democracy. And as I was revisiting it and and thinking about um, some of the attitudes that seem to have evolved in the democracies, not just in the United States, but around the world, I kept coming back to Banfield and saying, "This sounds so much like what Banfield wrote about. Um, these attitudes are almost indistinguishable from the uh, from the attitudes of villagers in the 1950s." And I, I, it kind of captured for me the problem that we are devolving, that we are devolving backward, um, or, or or a kind of political deevolution away from. The, the communities and the attitudes that sustain a liberal democracy and returning to these almost pre-modern um, attitudes about the family, um, the, the individual good, the household before all others. And so I thought rather than simply hector people and say, you know, that we're not being the citizens we could be today, I thought I would at least spend a little time. It's It's about about uh, two thirds of the second chapter where I just take people back and visit this village with them to say, doesn't this look familiar? Can you hear yourselves in the way that these villagers in 1955 or 1956 are talking uh, to each other and the way that they relate to what little community they have, hopefully to kind of shock people out of their cultural and ethnocentric Bubbles to say this has happened before and it could happen again because this this is how you're acting. Uh,
0: you don't mention the Lebanon in um, in your book, but as I was reading it, I, I couldn't help thinking of contemporary Lebanon. I, I'm not sure how much you know about the Lebanon. You're a foreign policy expert, so you probably know more than me. Uh, in addition to Lebanon or um, or uh, with Lebanon, are there other societies similar to to to, to the this this Uh, as you put it, devolution of American democracy? Uh, Do you think Lebanon is equivalent? Are there other countries that are alike? What's happening in America today?
1: Um, I I have a colleague who likes to call our politics the Ukrainianization of politics, where everything uh, becomes about uh, winning for advantage uh, that is based around you and your clique, you and your you know, kind of immediate coterie. Um, we could we could do this game all day of the Balkanization of politics, the Lebanizing, the Ukrainianizing. Um, I chose Italy, I, I chose Banfield's book in part because it, again, it was such a touchstone. Everyone who, every social scientist uh, at some point had to read Banfield, but also because it was a society at peace. It's a European society it's you know it's more like america uh in some ways and of course banfield in the book draws distinct parallels even in the 1950s why is um you know why is this this he calls it montegrano because he wanted to spare their feelings right he He had another name for it yeah yeah he didn't want to humiliate this town uh by name and he compares it to uh, you know other towns he's he's worked on banfield was a new dealer um who got disillusioned with planning and he was going from town to town he, he went to gunlock utah and um casa grande arizona and he he was trying to c- figure out why can't people cooperate why aren't people more prosperous right. he was
0: a follower as 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 the the wikipedia a uh, wikipedia page tells us about him he was a follower of James Q Wilson who who came up of course with the broken windows this
1: it's the Sorry, other way but, around. Wilson Wilson was inspired by him, but, oh, but Banfield, uh, was an early, yeah. Banfield was an early, you know, kind of classic American New Deal liberal um, who just was trying to explain why are people poor in places where they shouldn't be poor? Why can't they just cooperate with each other? It's interesting. And, um, it's it's interesting, Tom, because
0: you're a critic of the current Republican Party. We'll come to that. You, you're one of them all outspoken, I think, um, uh, Republican critics of the current nature of the Republican for, Party. For, former Republican. Former Republican. Uh, well, I mean, still still Republican in spirit. They've moved from you rather than you've moved from them, right? But either way, um, you, you, you describe Banfield as um, a new dealer, and yet um, he was an advisor to three Republican presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, uh, but he was also a friend of Leo Strauss and Milton Friedman. To what, and, I, and I don't want to make this into a conversation about Banfield, because your book isn't, yeah. as you say, about this. But to what extent is there a link between the current crisis of American democracy, and particularly of the Republican Party, and this seduction uh, of
1: Friedmanite ideas on the free market? Yeah, that, that's unfair to Banfield. That, Banfield wasn't that guy. Um Banfield knew Strauss and Friedman because he taught at the University of Chicago for decades. Uh, and he was, I, I would say, he, he kind of becomes sent a center right figure at best, uh, merely because he was oh, his work was overtaken when he said, you know, culture actually impacts uh prosperity and democracy and cooperation. And for a while in the 60s and 70s, that view fell out of fashion because the answer in the 60s, the late 60s after the Great Society was, no, no, the New Deal had it right. We can plan things. Government can fix this. And what people like Banfield were pointing out, going all the way to James Madison, and I think, it, which is a bipartisan problem, um, you can't sustain a democracy when you have unvirtuous people in it who simply only care about themselves. And I I actually trace this in the book Uh, to the late 60s and the early 1970s. You know, you and I were talking just before we came on about the 1970s, which I think is a pivotal decade in all of this, where um, we really develop the problem, one that Banfield does not talk about, um, but that I think underlies our current crisis, which is a pandemic of narcissism. And I think that pandemic of narcissistic, self-absorbed behavior begins with the kind of it permanentizing and um, institutionalizing and consumerizing of a youth culture that just never goes away and we we move away from being a kind of stoic adult responsible society insofar as we ever were as you know democracies are messy places and we become this kind of permanently adolescent entitled consumer oriented society whose instructions to government are get me the things I want. And I think so that uh, so ultimately,
0: um, Tom, are you arguing that this is the responsibility in historical terms of the countercultural left? I, I know you're quite keen on uh, Christopher Lash, Daniel Bell. Is that the thesis that you're articulating, that the roots of our narcissism can be traced back to the counterculture? Or is there something
1: broader no. than that? No, and I I'm going to keep pushing back, Andrew, because I don't think this fits in a neat right-left axis. Um and uh you know I don't think I even mentioned Daniel Bell. Um You do in, mention Lash though. But yes, and actually as I say in the book And I don't I'm mean that fan. critically,
0: I'm not I'm not no, a, in I, any way attacking but, it.
1: But I, I'm a big fan of the Christopher Lash of nineteen seventy-nine and completely not a fan of the Christopher Lash who emerges in the nineteen nineties, who writes The Revolt of the Elites. Um Lash becomes this kind of um anti-elitist, churlish, intellectual populist. I mean, in, in that sense, I think that Lash in 1979 was giving us a, a ter- terrific warning about where we were going. And Lash in the 1990s, I would say, becomes part of the problem where he says, you know, that the, the lotus eating, you know, faculty lounge lefties are, are the problem. I think that the problem overall is that democracies have a hard time in general handling peace and affluence, um, and that and that's true in Italy, in the UK, in India, Brazil, Poland, um, all of the cases that I look at in this book or mention in this book. Um, I think that what happens after the 1960s, and this is really more of a critique of capitalism than it is of the counterculture, is that we just consumerized everything. The baby boom creates this permanent market for never getting old or never growing up or never um, for never admitting scarcity or responsibility. And I think you see that even now um, in the way we advertise and the way we think about the role of government and the way we, um, you know, that every American home has three televisions. I mean, we have basically decided that. Um, a very high standard of living is functionally equivalent to democracy. And what worries me is that when people think they're being denied that extremely high standard of living, they attack democracy. They don't attack a government. They don't attack a party or a regime or a particular leader. They just say the whole system is corrupt and awful. Democracy is just a stupid game. And maybe we'd be better off with military rule or a strong man or central government planning and, you know, ruled by an oligarchy. Um, and I think that that's really dangerous. And I think that's where we are right now. We are in a transition point where um, over the, the next 20 years are going to tell the tale of whether liberal democracy survives or dies. As I said, Tom,
0: uh, you, you write some great stuff in The Atlantic as well. You wrote this very compelling piece earlier this year, The Myth of the Golden Years, a kind of an attack on the general nostalgia, both on the left and the right in America. Your book, as uh, as, as we've already discussed, is a critique of nostalgia, uh, sorry, a critique of narcissism. The two N-words, narcissism and, narcissism and nostalgia, seem to go together. Do you see yes. them
1: connected, how and why? A- absolutely, nostalgia, and I talk about nostalgia in the book. In fact, The Atlantic piece is a, um, a reworked excerpt from the book. Mm. Um, and I talk about nostalgia as uh, in Svetlana Boehm's, um term, which I uh, lifted from Anne Applebaum's excellent book on yeah. the and, twilight's and democracy.
0: being on the show as well. So yeah, uh, I she know wrote a wonderful
1: and, and She wrote a wonderful book and it tells you something that all of us who think about this are basically um, thinking along the same lines about the danger to democracy. But restorative nostalgia is a way of explaining away why you don't have the things you want. It's a way of scapegoating people in the past for why you think that you are somehow unfulfilled or that you've been shafted somehow in the present. And of course, in fascist regimes, fascist regimes are great at restorative nostalgia. You know, we would be a great country except that, you know, 30 years ago, we got shafted by the Jews or 30 years ago, we got shafted by the atheists or the professors or the, whoever it is. The other thing that really worries me about nostalgia, and I and I note um, a study done by a couple of comparativists who've looked at this around the world, is that young people are nostalgic for times that they never experienced. They genuinely believe they they talk about, you know, again, we keep coming back to the 1970s. I've had it happen here in America when people say, Yeah, but you grew up in the 70s. That was easy. Those times were great. And of course, the 1970s were miserable by any by any measurement of unemployment, inflation, job creation, um, the cost of living. I mean, it was just it was a miserable decade in almost every way. And even back then, white white uh blue collar workers were yelling about how we don't have enough and the world doesn't listen to us and we're culturally disrespected. So I yeah, I, yeah, I, I, ta- yeah I take that point. You know, but-
0: Um, Are you saying then that the the current, if you like, and I use this word carefully, crisis of the white working class in 2021 is essentially no different from the one of 1971 or 1975?
1: In Uh, some ways, yeah. You write
0: about this in a very personal way in the book because of your own upbringing in Massachusetts. Uh, you use Ian Bremer again, who's a, an old friend, and someone else who's been on the show several times, saying, you know, he escaped from Chelsea, Massachusetts. You escaped from your own working class origins to make something of yourself. But surely, um, surely, uh, Tom, things have changed in
1: global economic sure. terms. Sure, sure, things have changed. But it's amazing how the white working class and it, thank you for you know bringing up the autobiographical aspect of it because I think people should understand. Um, I came from that class. Um, my parents were high school dropouts. Um, you know, I grew up and I literally grew up like within. Yeah. And your mom, my judging window, from I'm the book, in, your mom sounds
0: an amazing person. She, she had some addiction problems and she went mm-hmm. into politics and she was obviously both very frustrating, but also inspirational as a mother.
1: She was, she was very tough. She was, she lasted two years in city politics and was defeated, but in the, but she she went into it to get a open more open air drug market closed down. Uh, and she succeeded. And so, you know, it was, it was like local action where my mom be- went on the city council, managed to hang in there for two years, got this drug market closed down, got the cops and the zoning people and all that stuff. And then she was, you know kind of drummed out by the local machine politics that that Massachusetts is so good at. but um, I came from that background, and so I I don't feel any need to be reverential or particularly, um, you know, understanding of what's happened now because a lot of the I, and I actually I bring up the hard hat riots of 1970. In yeah, we had
0: a, but we had a book on that. We had a guy. Yes. It's I a great his book. Name, but so, yeah, it's a really good book,
1: even if I forget from, the name of the author. Uh, from my from my publisher at Oxford, and um, you know, the, it's amazing that if you listen to people in 1970. They are indistinguishable from what people are saying now. We're not respected. The culture looks down on us. No one cares about what we think. And as I point out in the book, this was two years after Richard Nixon had been elected and two years before he was going to be reelected on a landslide. Um, you know, the, the culture was oriented around what does the white working class want? And I think, yes, things have changed, but I think this is a really important thing to point out. The attacks on liberal democracy are not coming from the poorest and dispossessed of the world. It is an, almost an entirely a middle class phenomenon. And that's the thing that I was writing about. If we were sitting here, if there were you know, poor people marching on Washington, you can say, well, you know, income inequality and poverty and homelessness and joblessness, I guess that's why democracy is in trouble. Those are not the people that are marching on Washington. Those are not the people electing Donald Trump or Berlusconi or um, you know the the people supporting anti-Muslim parties in Poland, these are the, or Brexit, um, these are entirely I shouldn't say entirely heavily phenomena of the discontented white male middle-aged middle class, and the whole you know the globalization. I I was actually I wrestled for months writing this book trying to prove. The, the, what I knew would be the strongest argument of my critics, which is that this is about economic anxiety, or here in America, right? anxiety, right argument, I, I, it's I,
0: I, just I, not there. I take your point, perhaps, but rage is rage. Uh, uh, earlier today, I had Alec Ross on the show. He has a new book out, and very it, it, it's dealing with very similar issues to yours, a quite a different book. He says, if nothing changes, uh, rage will be the defining quality of the 2020s. His book is appropriately called The Raging 2020s. Whether or not we can justify that rage, that rage still exists, doesn't it?
1: But, but rage is not rage. That, that I think is a, that's incorrect. There are people who are genuinely angry with policies who say, look, democracy is a good thing, and I want the policies of a democracy to better reflect my interests and take better care of me. That, I think, is a normal process of politics. That's why we have parties and legislatures and elections, and we fight it out about how to get to to our conception of a good society. This is about a rage that says democracy itself is a bad idea. That's the difference. Is it a mock rage, people- though? Is it
0: is it a media-induced, narcissistic kind of rage
1: that isn't really rage? Oh, I, I think when you have members of Congress, as we just had here in the United States two days ago, when you have people saying, I'm not running for re-election because I have a wife and children to think about, and I can't go go to work as a congressman every day fearing for my safety, then I think that's pretty real rage. This is not... Um, This is not some media invention about rage. You know, the the U.S. Capitol was breached by a violent mob for the first time since 1814. And yet, if you look at those people who were um, macing or bear spraying cops and beating them with clubs and who brought weapons in some cases, um, they were they were middle class they were bored and this is i think the author we need to talk about here beyond banfield is eric hoffer the guy who the guy who warned us in 1951 there is no greater danger of a mass an authoritarian mass movement arising than when you have a middle class that is bored out of its mind and i think that that boredom is in fact the the outcome of 30 years of affluence and prosperity and peace and you know, people are looking for some kind of meaning in their lives that fills this narcissistic void. And so they say, I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to carry a flag and go fix a stolen election that was taken away by a pedophile communist cabal. I mean, literally, we have become a society that's becoming psychotic. And it's not because of poverty. And it's not because of income inequality. That's not what's driving this illiberal moment around the world. I know it's everyone's favorite explanation, but the evidence just isn't there for it. It's, it. That's driving a lot of dissatisfaction. These are real problems. That drives a lot of electoral dissatisfaction and a lot of political um, uh, um, debate. But it's not, it's not the source of the illiberal moment. It's not why there is an anti-Muslim movement in Poland in a country that doesn't have any Muslims in it. It's not poor people doing that. It's not. It's not the poor that we're, you know, pushing for Brexit. Tom, is this poor. one of the reasons
0: why you, you, at the end of the book, you call very clearly for three fixes, and then we'll get to all of those. But one of them is uh, military service. You, you seem to be falling back on a, or uh, maybe a, a Spartan-like solution to this. Do, do, do the young men just need more discipline here? I mean, why you know, is military I, service so key?
1: I. Well, I don't call for that. And in fact, I call that the new Spartanism that I think needs to be stopped. I think we fetishize military service in the United States. And I think that what what I recommend in the book is a summer of training or service simply to get kids of both sexes, both genders, out of their um, homes for six weeks. I said, you know, arbitrarily, I picked a month or six weeks. So, so a civic six weeks. Uh... But but in a but in a in a military environment, because I want to demystify the military. I don't think I don't think we've succeeded with you know uh, kids go volunteer and get intern wages to go pick up trash next to highways. Um, you know, six weeks where you say, okay, you've done something that you didn't like to do. You had to live with a bunch of people in a building. You had to eat crappy food, you had to get up at six o'clock in the morning. and now you' you've served your country in a very small way. Now you don't have to, you know constantly walk up to veterans and thank them for their service. You have actually seen guns because that's the other problem in America. We mystify guns. We have half the country in love with them. Half of them are terrified of them. You've now been in an environment of you know where people show you how to use these things responsibly and then put them away ideas that I came up with because I think it's small and doable. I think it was a, it's a small, like I, I am deeply opposed to to a draft because I think it'll just re- replicate all the social inequalities that the draft caused the first time around. Um, but I think something that you can't get out of where, you, where even, like I said, for a month as an 18-year-old, you just have to do stuff you don't want to do for something larger than yourself in an environment where people can actually tell you what to do instead of asking you nicely to go pick up the trash, um, I think would be a good thing. And it's actually not a Spartanism, as I call it in the book. It's a response to what I fear has become a new Spartanism that is undermining um, our civil military balance, particularly in the United States. And it worries me quite a lot. Talk about the other two fixes
0: then. That 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 you are suggesting as a way of countering this sort of cultural amnesia, narcissism, nostalgia for something that didn't really exist, and this increasing rage, absurd rage of a, of a middle class, uh, a pampered middle class. Uh,
1: uh, or as I I borrow the as I borrow from uh, um, uh, the fifties from C. Wright Mills and others, the, a lumpen bourgeoisie. We now have a lump in bourgeoisie that doesn't just doesn't particularly care about democracy. Um, I, one counterintuitive recommend, recommendation I make is that the parties actually have to become stronger. Parties need to stand for something instead of merely being vehicles for celebrities to hijack. Um, you know, Americans, and here I'll I'll just stick to the American context. Americans are terrible at ideological consistency. Um, we've known this since the '60s that most Americans don't really. Um, you know, uh, um, that they that uh, they don't really understand, you know, kind of where they are on the right or the left. their uh, their views are kind of an amalgam of political views. And the parties have kind of decayed along those lines of simply saying, well, if you're rural and evangelical and white and don't like, you know, the the pop culture, you're probably a Republican. If you're urban, uh, or live in a suburb, and you have a certain amount of education, and you think, you know, you're basically pro-choice, or, you know, you, you're then you're basically a Democrat. But that's not going to sustain a, a, a party system to produce logical outcomes. And I talk about this in the book. I, I, I tell a couple of stories in the book from the press. Um, my favorite is the woman who, in Iowa, a caucus voter. Now, if you're not an American, caucuses are unusual in America, but they're very they're for activists. They're for very politically involved people. And yet this caucus voter says, yeah, I really like Pete Buttigieg, the left-leaning, he's now the yeah, secretary yeah, yeah. of transportation, <laughs> right? Left-leaning, gay, married, uh, young guy. She says, but you know, if Buttigieg doesn't get the nomination, I guess I'll vote for Donald Trump. Well, y- you can't make sense out of a voter like that. And you certainly can't construct a party platform or any set of proposals that will make sense. But how do you do that, Tom, in a
0: celebrity-rooted culture where people are looking at these individuals, whether it's Trump or Buttigieg, as celebrities in terms of their sexuality, who they're married to, what they buy, what they wear rather than what they think. And Trump himself is an example of someone who is sort of post-ideology, I guess, in many ways. Yeah.
1: I mean, and we live in a post-policy world. I mean, Trump, there's a great um, beginning in Bob Woodward's first book about Trump. Where Bannon comes, his one of his advisors says, "Well, I I don't understand how you know you're going to try and run as a Republican, but you're you're pro-choice," and Trump says, "Okay, I'm not, fine, I'm not pro-choice anymore." And he says, "Well, you've donated to all these Democrats," and he says, "Fine, I'm not, I won't, I'll donate to Republicans now." I mean, you know, he vote he donated to Carter, he wasn't a Reagan supporter, um, and then suddenly he says, "Well, I'm going to be a Republican." I I actually argued in the 2016 primary that um, the Republicans should have just said, you're not a Republican, the party, you know, the central organizing, you know, committee of the GOP has decided you can't, you can't be on our, our debate stage. We're not going to share our money with you. We're not going to amplify your message. Um, and just to be even handed about this, I found it pretty appalling that Hillary Clinton had to run and, and, you know, take a really serious challenge from Bernie Sanders, who hadn't ever bothered to register as a Democrat. And I think, I don't think it's too much to ask that if you're vying for the nomination of a major party that at some point you should, I don't know, join that party. Um, but that's, we have become incoherent about what parties mean. And I think you see this right. um, yeah. as well in Britain and Italy and other places where parties have merely become flags of convenience for for entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, Tom, as we discussed before and as you brought up earlier, you think that the 1970s, and I agree with you, is a particularly important period. You you wrote a great piece in The Atlantic earlier this year saying that the Republican Party has become like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the late 1970s. We've had a number of shows about how America itself is like the dying days of the Soviet Union, particularly with Harold James from Princeton University. Um, is the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, uh, some sort of rotten legacy of the 70s, whether it's the Soviet Communist Party or some other uh, 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 bureaucratized
1: organization? No, I, I, I mean, I think that the the damage done to the Democratic Party in the late 60s and the early 70s was that they veered too far away from their old machine politics roots and became this um gigantic coalition that is completely unmanageable and we're seeing it right now we're we i believe that in the united states we are facing an existential crisis of democracy and what's happening in the meantime is the democratic party is tied up in knots with itself about an infrastructure bill i mean that's just crazy uh, this is i hate to say it you know because i'm not uh, you know, I, I'm not a um I come from Massachusetts, and I know that I worked in Massachusetts politics for two and a half years. Uh, I worked in the State House in Boston, and I know, you know, I remember the old Irish mafia of my youth. Um but on the other hand, when you have a party that is completely undisciplined right. and completely um, you know um, m- m- in a kind of multifaceted splitting apart of everybody that's not a Republican, um, you can't really be an effective. Aren't
0: you falling uh, force into? Uh, aren't you falling falling into the same trap that you're warning us about? Uh, a nostalgia trap. You want the the republic uh, the, the Dems to go back to um, to Tip O'Neill, the Republicans perhaps to go I back. Certainly-
1: I just said that I don't want them to go back to that, but I think a more disciplined Democrat, something between 1965 and 2021 is the only way the Democrats are going to how get anything done. How realistic,
0: though? I mean, given the dysfunctionality of American political parties and the system, how realistic is the reform of the, the party system your second fix? I,
1: I think, uh, well, first, I think the Republican Party's dead. And right. that party, if it ever comes back, I think it will have to come back when the donors and the special interests and the lobbyists abandon it because it can't get anything done. Um, the, Dem- the Republican Party has basically made a bet that it can survive for another 10 or 15 years, and I think they can, as a minority rule party, and they can keep passing, you know, tax bills. Uh, but sooner or later, that's that's not going to be enough. Um, I think the Democratic Party n- needs a generational change. I mean, I have no, I, I think I've always underestimated, turns out I think I've always underestimated Nancy Pelosi, yeah. Was a lot tougher than I than I gave her credit for, but she's like eighty one years old. I mean, yeah, and Biden and people. Biden looks as if Biden's he's ninety one, right? Chuck but he looks Schumer's as if he's ninety one
0: and behaves as if he's ninety one. And well, Chuck, there's something Chuck symbolic Schumer's about Sanders that, isn't it? Right? Isn't there something symbolic, Tom, about the the Democrats being run by these very old people who appear even older than they actually are?
1: But I think that that was a result of the irresponsibility of a new wave of Democrats who have not yet internalized that to be a national governing party, you have to create coalitions. Yeah. You are not gonna create a party. You are not gonna build a party on the furthest left of you know, Bernie Sanders or AOC or the squad. That's not, that's not the future of the Democratic Party either. The biggest successes in 2018, We're the Democratic centrists who managed to win in places that were a shade blue or a shade red and capture those seats. It doesn't really matter with somebody who's in a D plus 55 district thinks. And the the reason we ended up, and I think, you know, I voted for Joe Biden. I think he's perfectly good. Um, I would have voted for Biden in 2016 if he had run. Um, But I think the reason we're falling back on these older centrists is because the democratic party is so fractious that it can't produce anybody the the bench is too shallow because the democrats became just used to being in the opposition and coming from very safe districts where again where you know when you're in a deep plus 55 district you don't have to worry about what kind of nutty ideas you're floating because they're never going to you're going to get reelected those ideas will never come to fruition people want to think a little more about this i quote him in the book david shore who's a progressive Uh, a data analyst who keeps kind of warning, look, all elections are now national elections and you can't keep running as if you are running to capture one district in San Francisco and one in New York. You're going to have to create, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say it's like the Howard Dean 50 state strategy, but you're going to have to do something bigger uh, to create a coalition that includes people that you might not agree with most of the time, but that agree with you about the basics about democracy. And I think right now the Democrats are having a hard time doing that because you have a generational disconnect of people who don't think in terms of coalition and people like Biden, who I think, unfortunately, are still trying to build coalitions that are not within reach anymore.
0: Very briefly, Tom, because I want to get to your third fix. How much is the Internet to blame in terms of its fragmentation and ideological ghettoization for what's happening in all this?
1: As as I.T. guys always say, when they come to fix your computer, a lot of the problem is the uh, chair keyboard interface, which is the human being who's sitting in front of them. Um, You know, I trace a lot of these problems back to the back 40, 50 years with this growth of narcissism. But the Internet puts that on steroids. The Internet is like an engine that generates narcissistic behavior, performative Mm. behavior. Um, Self-centered behavior, because we only deal with other people through a screen instead of taking our cues from face-to-face interaction. Uh, And it also generates a huge amount of resentment and envy. You know, going back to the economic explanations, the Internet, interestingly enough, has created huge amounts of resentment between people who are actually very close in social class. Um, The Internet, and and this I think goes, this is true as well of American society. We're not sitting around resenting Jeff Bezos. We're resenting the people that we found on Zillow, whose house is valued at 15% more than ours is, because they somehow put in central air conditioning. That's what's driving a lot of this behavior. So the internet has become, you know, I, I always liken the internet as a metaphor to food. We've never had more food. We've never had more calories available to us. Unfortunately, we've chosen to take them in through fast food and junk, and you know, cheeseburgers and milkshakes, and that's why, even though none of us are starving, we are obese and diabetic. You gotta be um, careful same same with, uh, with you gotta be uh,
0: careful with uh, food, uh, Tom, because we'll we'll come on to your comments about Indian food, um, which wow. caused such a controversy on the internet. But let's let's <laughs> let's leave that in all seriousness. Um, let's get to your third fix. Then we we talked about a, a limited civic service. We've talked about uh, some sort of p- f- profound reform of the political parties. The third reform seems to be the sort of the meta-reform that might make all this possible. What's that?
1: Uh, well, one I, I, one reform I think would change the complexion of American politics, um, not really available in other countries, but I think, again, a limited structural fix that doesn't require tinkering with the Constitution or with constitutions in other countries for similar kinds of fixes I think we should enlarge the House. Um, I think, again, we should think about structural changes that are within our power that don't require massive muscle movements. You know, uh, people on the left, I I keep having this debate with people on social media, and it tires me out about abolishing the Electoral College. People on the left need to understand, you're not going to abolish the Electoral College. It's just not going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen in time to save democracy. So get it out of your head because of the constitutional barriers to doing that. Enlarging the House is a different matter. Um, If suddenly you change the size of a congressional district, uh, that would change the number of votes in the Electoral College as well. Um, It would make Congress more representative. It would make um, House members uh, more reliant on their voters rather than on large kind of national movements that can generate money that can help them Run ads to get above the noise in big buy districts where they have to come up with a lot of money. Um, so I think that's one possible fix. Um, I think in the United States, I think it's time to add members to the Senate. The United States has this colonial residue of territories and commonwealths that don't have representation, including the District of Columbia. Um, that should change. Um, I, I think the answer to a problem with democracy is more, but more. Um, responsible democracy not simply more outraged participation that can you know goes with the tides back and forth but structural long term changes that can actually produce a more representative and a more even keeled uh, government capable of taking in a lot of the the new demands of the 21st century
0: i'm struck by the fact you're a university professor but you don't come up with any educational fixes and I, and i don't mean that critically Uh, You quote, as so often in these kinds of books, Hannah Arendt, and you say uh, you you quote her on the need to sort of to get beyond the 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 idiocy of of, of, of democracy in in late stage capitalist societies and and remind ourselves of of citizenship. How do we do that? I mean, I I take your three reforms. Maybe they're doable. Maybe they're not. But how are we going to make people individually more accountable, responsible, so that they don't fall into the the narcissism track because i don't see reforming the house or changing the nature of political parties fixing our our epidemic of narcissism.
1: Well, i the three things i recommended were things that make people have to work together, which is why i chose them. I mean, i think on a local level i could have just as easily said get together and think about how to well, like my mom did, close down a drug market or fill the potholes or you know, improve bus service because that's what get, we've we've withdrawn from having to talk to each other about very commonplace things. Ask people uh, who their member of Congress is they don't, and they don't know. Ask them the last time they paid attention to a city council meeting. And that's a complete mystery. They care about the president, that's it. They care about the presidency and national politics and all of the other stuff flies under the radar. Um, there are two answers to your question. One's about education. I actually think I, in a previous book called The Death of Expertise, I think education, um, universal education, has actually produced part of the problem, which is that people are broadly educated. High school, um, people are completing high school pretty much universally now, and college attendance rates are through the roof. And when I started college in 1979, something like 14% of American women went to college um, and a minority of American men. Uh, so the problem isn't education. I know that when we're all educated People, we say, well, the answer is obviously more education. That is uh, that is not the answer. And I will point to my generation. I'm 60 years old, um, which means I'm, I don't know, Jen Jones, I'm a tail end of the boomers. I I don't, I don't, I feel like I live in a notch generation between the boomers and the Xers. But the people between say 55 and 75, you, you know, early Xers, late boomers, they're all very educated. They grew up when I did, uh, and had civics classes. I I went to a public high school in an industrial mill town, and I had courses on, you know, I had to learn Supreme Court cases. I'd learn about the Constitution, um, you know. But yet, the people 55 to 75 are the most illiberal chunk of society right now in every country. Here in the United States. Those are the people that are semi-retired or retired. They're sitting around staring at Facebook all day, and they're they're the ones that are sending you memes about adenochrome and Hunter Biden's cocaine habits and Joe Biden being a you know an android and the Chinese weapons labs. Clearly, education didn't solve that problem, and I think education convinces people that they're smarter than they are. They say, "Well, I'm a I'm a college graduate." Yes, but you're not you may not be a very well-informed college graduate. So the two things I recommend to people is read a newspaper. Simply be not the internet, not Facebook. If you're going to go get your news from the internet, buy a subscription to a reputable newspaper and promise yourself that you'll spend a half an hour of reading that instead of four hours reading uh, or watching cable news. The other is that I think on a micro level, We simply have to start being the example to each other that we want to be, that we want to see other people do. I have taken on a personal level. When people start howling conspiracy theory stuff at me, I don't argue with them. No, I say, what you're saying is wrong, and this this conversation will demean us both. And I am not going to engage in your attention-seeking behavior. You want to be an adult. You want to make a choice about not taking a vaccine. Then make your choice and suffer with the consequences of what you're doing and i think that that may be a better um you know a better alternative than you know trying to educate people out of thinking that venezuelan voting machines changed the 2020 election i think we i think we have to have a little more stoicism and a little more put a few more social guardrails into place to say there are things that are too ridiculous to discuss and that you are a bad citizen for thinking the way you are i know it's judgmental. It's judgmental but maybe we need a little more judgmentalism well one
0: one way of, of getting some educated judgmentalism is to read tom nichols's new book our own worst enemy the assault from within on modern democracy he's clearly intellectually feisty he can't be boxed up in any left right political uh, conservative radical uh, box and he's very interesting um And the book is is great. Tom, I really enjoyed it. Um, In addition to your new book, you're in Rhode Island at home at the moment, these strange Mm -hmm. times where we're still not quite sure if we can go out. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book?
1: You know, it's funny. We were talking about the 70s, and I just finished, when I was writing the book, I was reading David Frum's book on the 70s. And uh, then I came across this, which is Ron Brownstein's book, where Mm -hmm. he targets- 1974 as kind of the cultural turning point, uh, uh, you know, uh, of American culture. And I I feel this very keenly because I hated 1970. I was 14. I turned 14 that year. And I felt like I was living from the transition of the 60s into the 70s. And it felt like the culture became kind of plasticky and shallow and, you know, kind of... Uh, off the rails, and um, I, even though I lived as a teenager and went to high school in the 70s, I think of it as probably the worst decade uh, of the of the years of my you know. So why years read the five, book? I, I, are you saying he's entirely wrong? No, I'm saying it's it's interesting. He's made me rethink it because he's absolutely right that 72, 73, and then finally, kind of blossoming in 74, there is this really strange cultural awakening and turning where the 60s you know and the 70s are right. at this this nodal point but i think what's interesting about it is what comes after it because i think to understand why the rest of the 70s are so bad you have to understand why this is the high point that leads into it and i think um ron gets it right i think it's just an interesting well yeah interesting. and ron was on the show uh,
0: yeah ron was on the show talking about the book and the one thing i got from your book uh, is i need to uh, rewatch 3 days of the condor 1975 american movie that, that that you reminded me of. Lots of cultural references in the book. Wonderful conversation, Tom. Keep well, keep arguing, keep aggravating people because we need guys like you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me.